May you all heed this warning. This is John 8, verse 24. And this is Jesus, our Lord, speaking. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What does it mean to die in sins? This is a serious question and one that we must all consider, especially in light of the fact that Scripture declares, for the wages of sin is death, and for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and also that if you kept the whole law but stumble even at one point, you have essentially broken all of the law. You're guilty of all. So I say again, what does it mean to die in your sins? Is there even good news? Is it possible to avoid this? Well, there is an answer. And praise God we have one. So let's examine how we are truly saved. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's continue on real quick. Romans 5.1. As I turn there, listen up. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Romans 8, 1. Listen up again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus So you are either dead in your sins or you're in Christ. And if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And if there is no condemnation, you are at peace with God. This is something you must understand. And this is something that the Jehovah's Witnesses, as I have talked with many of them now, do not grasp this. And why is it that they can't do this? It's because of this term and this concept of the ransom. The ransom, uh, if you were to look in the uh, what does the Bible really teach in chapter 5, the entire chapter is based on it. And yes, that is their 2008 release. I believe there's a newer one from uh, 2014. I forget which. What it's called, it doesn't seem to be as in your face as a, as a booklet, but this is the one that I happened to pick up uh, when I had, uh, on one of my conversations with the Jehovah's Witnesses at their stand at Walmart. It's one of the, the booklets I uh, was able to use, again, as an open door. But I, having read through it, I remember coming to this, this chapter, chapter 5. And yes, I know previously I said that it was about, chapter 5 was about Jesus. I did make a comment uh, in that previous recording Uh, in the notes where I said, oh, actually it was uh, chapter 4. But chapter 5, the ransom. So this is how 
these people are held captive. And this is something you have to understand because, again, our hearts break for these people. They're held captive by Satan to do his will, as it explains in 2 Timothy 2, 26. And so we come to them, we plead with them, we teach them, and not in anger, but we show them these things through Scripture, which is the power of the gospel to save. So, this ransom again. Where do they get this idea? This term is actually biblical, but where they draw it from, there's a few verses. Uh, in the first one is Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. And I'm going to back up just a few just so you get the context. But Jesus called them to himself, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this term is biblical. But again, what does this term ransom mean? So we, to understand this from the Jehovah's Witness perspective, you have to essentially jump into what the Watchtower teaches. And again, one of the most valuable things you can do to point them to Scripture is also to show how Scripture does not line up when you put all of their theology together. In other words, if you can point out inconsistency in what they teach, especially by showing them Scripture, that it does not line up, it will destroy their arguments, it will destroy the foundation in which they stand upon, and that is how the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. So you are called to proclaim the gospel, but if they have another gospel, which it is not, it is false, it cannot save. So, again, let's look at this idea of the ransom. So in that Bible, what does the Bible, or not the Bible, sorry, the booklet, what does the Bible really teach? Um, essentially, they sum it up in this chapter as, as Adam having been a perfect human life, being created by God. And again, remember, they hold to Jesus being simply a creation of God, but his special creation Right, but we've we've already disproved that in the, the previous recordings. But just for the sake of their argument, let's let's try and follow this. So, as Adam was a perfect creation, he lost that life when he sinned. Therefore, Jesus, being the second Adam, which yes, he did enter into flesh, and Romans five does explain some of this. He then continues in and lives a perfect life, right? But this is where then they go off course. So with that perfect life, he then suffers and dies at the hands of the men and then gives his life as an exchange. He, go, he basically ascends to heaven, gives his perfect life as a ransom, as an exchange for that which Adam lost. But what is the effect of that? What does that accomplish? This is where we have to pay attention. Because essentially what they say 
is that what Christ accomplished in the ransom was essentially a second chance. Because his life essentially frees us from the effects of sin and death. But only in this lifetime. And a lot of this plays into their idea that when you die, you, you cease to exist. Okay, And I won't get into all of that. Yes, they, they try and rip Ecclesiastes out of context. Um, but essentially what, what, <laughs> what they're trying to say is you, he, he gives us a second chance. Why is that? Because once we die, we're no longer under sin. He has freed us from that. And God will remember us and raise us in the thousand-year kingdom as a, as a perfect person who then will be taught to obey. And as you are taught, you then can still die if you disobey. Oh, and then, by the way, if you survive that... Yes, this is what it says in chapter 7. Satan will be released, and then you have to survive that portion by still being obedient. But, wait, how does this even work? Do they still have kids? Is this an endless cycle? Is God going to just grant them another chance? And this is why in these conversations, when I started to realize this is exactly what they're saying, they have no hope. They're literally not at peace with God. If they still have to prove themselves, if they still have to do anything to achieve God's pleasure, God's um, just being at peace with God, if they have to do anything to achieve that, they won't do it. They're going to fail. Just like we all are born in sin, we will die in our sins unless we believe that Jesus is, as he said, I am. There's a reason he says that. And just as we've proven his deity over the last couple of recordings, and how the Watchtower essentially tries to uh, twist the scriptures to make him into... A, the first created being, they are now twisting the scriptures to essentially strip you of any hope that you would have in faith in Christ. This is a very serious matter, and it's something that we don't often engage them on. They are expecting the conversation about the deity of Christ. They prepare for that. They are not ready for you to engage them about the cross, about the ransom, about the effects of the cross. And the fact that, again, when I, having heard this, I literally told these people to their face multiple times, by your own statements, you nullify the cross and the whole purpose in Christ coming and dying. That is exactly what you are doing when you make these professions and when you follow after the watchtower. Like I said... I'm passionate about this because it is a serious matter and it condemns those who follow after that system and they don't even know it. We must make them know it. 
And so let's actually dive into scripture. Let's look at this. And again, if you don't believe me, real quick, let me show you in chapter 7 exactly what it says from their stuff. Oh, and by the way, um, somehow if you are, uh, because they say that you can be raised even if you are unrighteous, again, because they they completely mess up uh, the end times, they completely mess up Revelation chapters 20 through 22. Again, because all of this is stripping verses out of the context. You can make a verse mean whatever you want it to mean if you don't keep it in context and you don't allow uh, what the whole sentence or the whole paragraph is saying, what the whole chapter is saying, right? So let's take it back to the text. But again, if you don't believe me, here, let me point it out to you. This is directly from what does the Bible really teach? So this is directly in the appendix about the judgment day again. And they, to speed this up just for the sake of time, they declare the judgment day to be the thousand-year reign based on the fact that it does talk about those being resurrected around that time. But here's what they say. Uh, This is several paragraphs down the list. Um, So this is, again, quoting directly from what does the Bible really teach in the appendix on the section about what is the judgment. According to the Apostle John's vision, scrolls were opened, and the dead were judged out of those things written in the scrolls according to their deeds. Revelation 20, 12. Are these scrolls the the record of people's past deeds? No. The judgment will not focus on what people did before they died. How do we know that? The Bible says, The one who has died has been acquitted from his sin. Romans 6, 7. Those resurrected thus come to life with a clean slate, so to speak. The scrolls must therefore represent God's further requirements. To live forever, both Armageddon survivors and resurrected ones will have to obey God's commandments, including whatever new requirements Jehovah might reveal during a thousand years. Thus, individuals will be judged on the basis of what they do during Judgment Day. Judgment Day will give billions of people their first opportunity to learn about God's will and to conform to it. This means that a large-scale educational work will take place. Indeed, the inhabitants of the land will learn about righteousness, Isaiah 26.9. However, not all will be willing to conform to God's will, Isaiah 26.10 says, Even if the wicked is shown favor, he will not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, he will act wickedly, and he will not see the majesty of Jehovah. These wicked ones will be put to death permanently during Judgment Day, Isaiah 65.20. Okay, do you hear this? What hope do you have if you still have to conform to the law, if you have to prove yourself, right? Does the Bible actually teach this? No, it doesn't. Again, because they have twisted the word and there is no hope for those who are trying to follow the law. So to add clarity, let's just open the scripture and turn to Revelation 20 real quick and follow this chain of events. Let's see if it even makes sense how they have described it. In chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. 
After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of, their, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, listen to this, pay attention. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, speaking of those who were raised this, at this point, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, right? Speaking of those who are still on the earth, who are not born again, who are not in Christ, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. So this is again after the thousand years, right? From whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things were, which were written in the books according to their deeds. So I ask you, at what point... Was this to teach them during a thousand years? Again, we just read back in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So now these are those standing before the throne. The books were opened according to their deeds. And then there's this other book called the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The judgment is not the thousand-year reign. The judgment is according to your deeds in this life now. When you take your first breath until it is expired from you permanently and you are raised again, that is the point of your judgment. That is what you will be judged upon your deeds. Unless, let's read on. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And remember, we just read back in verse 6 again, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these. The second death has no power, right? But they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, verse 15 again, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. So you either judged according to your deeds and thrown into the lake of fire. Again, you have no hope in the law or you are in the book of life. What is this book of life? How do we get into it? Right? That should be the question we ask, which now goes back to the verses which I have already spoken on. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what it means. 
The ransom is not a second chance. The ransom literally is the payment due, the very wrath of God that should be poured out upon us, Christ having taken it upon himself. But you must believe. So let's take a look at this further, right? Let's actually look at what scripture says about this ransom. So turn back to Romans chapter 3. Oh, and by the way, if you are still following the Jehovah's Witness system and you think somehow that you are going to manage the time when Satan is released and you have already been given even more laws to follow, think about this. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were given everything, dominion over all creation, except they could not touch the tree of life and knowledge. And yet that one law that one single law, they still fell as perfect humans. If all you are is simply brought back to that state and you are given more laws and Satan is released to deceive the nations, you really think you stand a chance? This is why Christ is so important. This is why we look to him. And this is why it's so amazing that he is perfect and sinless even while being tempted right? So again, Romans 3. Let's take a look at this. So I'll point out a few things in chapter 3. And beginning at verse 9, I'm going to read through and literally just kind of drive this point home. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, literally everyone, right? Are all under sin as it is written. Pay attention. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That ends verse 18. Think about some of these things, right? No, not one. There's none righteous. You are not righteous. I am not righteous. Yet what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 18 when the rich young ruler came before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And what was his response? He first challenges him on this and he says, why do you call me good? There is none good except who? Except God. God. Jesus is God. He is the only one who is good. We must get that. So let's continue on in Romans chapter 3 to point out a few more things. This is verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Do you get that? The law is not a means of righteousness. The law is to shut your mouth and ask God for forgiveness because that is your only hope. And again, how does that look like? Continuing on, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. I say it again, because by the works of the law, No flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
I can't tell you how many times I pointed that out. You must get this. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn your way to God because we are already fallen. And again, like I said, even if you think you're going to have a chance in this coming kingdom in the sense of you're not indwelt by God, right? We are made new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, which when I brought forward to the Jehovah's Witnesses multiple times, they really had no idea what that was even talking about, right? They, they literally are hoping that somehow they're going to achieve righteousness and that God would be pleased with them. But we just read, works of the law, no flesh will be justified because it's meant to point out our sin. The more laws that were given, the more the people sinned, right? And so, as we continue on verse 21, just pay attention because this is, this is the, the whole point of the matter. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Right there, that's speaking the law and the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, right? We had the law and the prophets that pointed to the righteousness of God being manifested. How was the righteousness of God being manifested? Continue reading. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who, what? exercise obedience no it says for all those who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god catch this being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in christ jesus now pause that term redemption is what they would translate ransom this purchasing this buying back right being justified as a gift by his grace through the ransom, which was in Christ Jesus, the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, the speaking of God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he, speaking of God, would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean? Let's pay attention. First, God displayed Jesus publicly, right? The Jewish leaders wanted him crucified. Pontius Pilate ultimately gave in, even though he declared him to be uh, innocent three times, yet because Pontius Pilate feared for his own life, right? He gave in to their demands. Had Jesus crucified, he was cast outside of the city. He was taken up on Golgotha, right? Uh, which we call Calvary. And he was crucified there. That was a public display. God had this done publicly, right? Have you ever considered the fact that this public display was not just for the Jews here or the Romans, but that it was actually for the angels and demons, including Satan himself? What do I mean? Well, again, if you follow this passage, 
It says in verse 25, again, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So stop. How does God demonstrate righteousness by passing over sin? Right? Does it not also say that Satan is the accuser of the brethren? Does he not have something to stand before God and accuse and say, this person is a sinner? Why have you not struck them down? Why are they still alive? Why are they not simply judged? They've broken your law, right? This is a serious question. And in fact, even if you follow scripture, turn back really quick to Proverbs 17, verse 15. It says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. How do you justify the wicked, right? If they are wicked, they must be punished. So to justify them is an abomination. How does this work? Are you and I not both called wicked, right? And yet, turn back to Exodus 34. This is the part where God displays his glory before Moses on the mountain. And Moses asks to show me, he says to to God, show me your glory. And it says, beginning in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Right? Again, how does God justify the wicked? How is he righteous in doing so? Have you ever considered this? This is what's called the great dilemma. And it's something that was necessary for God to display how he is righteous through the cross, through the punishment of his very son on the cross. If you can't see the fact that God is now displaying Christ for all again, both earthly and heavenly, for all to see so that now God can say, yes, Abraham, he is righteous. Why? Yes, he sinned. But his sins now have been laid upon my very son and my wrath, which was necessary to punish sin, for God to be just, was poured out on the son. That is what this is talking about. That's what this propitiation means. It's not that Jesus just simply presented a perfect life as the JW doctrines teach. The watchtower is trying to convince you of. No, it's that the son took on the very wrath that was due. And he took it upon himself on our behalf. And that is why you must believe 
And that is all you can do. It is not by works that you can be saved. That's what this ransom truly is. That's what it means to be redeemed in Christ. He has bought us with his very blood that was poured out. And again, that then demonstrates God to be just because all those sins that he previously overlooked, right? He declared Abraham, uh, uh, it was accounted to him as righteousness for believing him, right? In Genesis 15, which is what exactly Paul is about to get into in Romans chapter 4, David, right? God declared him to be a man after his own heart, yet he committed some heinous sins with Bathsheba, right? Taking him or taking her to himself uh, when she was still married and then, and then trying to not only trick his, uh, her husband to sleep with her to hide the fact that she was now pregnant, but also had him murdered. And yet we can see his repentance in Psalm 51. But yet how does God overlook that? How does God say he is a man after his own heart? Because the fixed point in time Christ was made public, right? Crucified to demonstrate God's righteousness and God's justice. That is what it means then when you get down to verse 26, where it says here, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, right? So now, so that he, speaking of God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now God can look upon us when we are in Christ. That's what this is meaning now. Christ is our representative. He is our mediator. And oh, there's so much to that, but I won't get into it today. But he is our representative. God now can look upon us being in Christ and recognize the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, which is why we are covered, it says, both in a robe of righteousness and by his blood, right? So his perfect works then cover us and his punishment, his life, right? That was due, our very lives that were due to be paid for our sins were laid upon him. And he covers us now in both of those regards. And so you must be in him. Which again, that's why, if you remember the very first recording, what I covered in John chapter 3, let me just remind you real fast. Because that's what really brings this to light. This is what this all comes down to, is the gospel. Verse 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's that being crucified. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And that eternal life, again, is not if you get through the thousand-year millennium, if you get through the time when Satan is released. No, that is speaking now, at this moment. Today is the day, right? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And again, pay attention. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. And I mentioned that that's speaking of at this point or the point when he was sent to take on flesh. Um, he is not coming in the form of judgment. He comes in Revelation 19 as judgment, right? When he establishes his his throne, the throne of David. 
in Jerusalem again. But he did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Again, I, I plead with you, listen to this. Pay attention. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you get that? That's what it means that Christ is our ransom. He paid back to God what was due. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he who knew no sin became sin, the very object, right, that God was to punish, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him, in Christ. This all comes together, but you must be in Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, wait. The, the Bible declares God to be a God of love, right? Yes, and it does. So, so how, how does he pour out his wrath on the sun? That doesn't sound very loving. In fact, the Watchtower will tell you this, that that's, that's not a loving father, right? But you will have to recognize that the cross is both love and justice, in fact, let me just read from the New World Translation 2013, Romans 5, 6 and following, and pay attention to what it says. And again, this is the JW version, right? For indeed, while we were still weak, Christ died for ungodly men at the appointed time. We know what that time was, right? For hardly would anyone die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone may dare to die. But God recommends his own love to us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath. Whose wrath? For if when we were enemies, we became reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more we will be saved by his life now that we have become reconciled. Not only that, but we are also rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Again, that's the New World Translation 2013. It's pretty clear. And think about this. We were sinners, right? What does it say? Verse 10, we were enemies of God. Why? Because we are sinners. Now think about this. Pay attention. This is Psalm 5. And for some of you, you've probably never heard this before. Psalm 5, verse 4 to 7. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, that's his mercy, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Are you getting the picture? Let's continue this. 
Again, New World Translation here, 2013. Nahum. I mean, how many of you have even ever even heard of Nahum? Nahum, chapter 1. Just listen to the first three verses. Again, this is the, the Watchtower's version, right? A pronouncement against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Verse 2. Jehovah is a God who requires exclusive devotion and takes vengeance. Jehovah takes vengeance and is ready to express his wrath. Jehovah takes vengeance against his foes, and he stores up wrath for his enemies. Jehovah is slow to anger and great in power, but by no means will Jehovah hold back due punishment. His path is in destructive wind and in storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And it continues on. God punishes his enemies. If we were enemies of God because of our sin, and then Christ takes that sin upon himself, he is now the enemy of God. That is how God's justice is paid out. Because he is now the enemy. Do you get this? The cross, the ransom, is salvation for those who believe because God is just in punishing his enemy, his son, taking our sin. So if you are not in Christ, you will die in your sins. Why? Because you're still God's enemy. Your obedience to the law is not enough because you've already broken it. You have no hope apart from Christ. Please hear me when I say this. So I know what you're thinking next. Wait, I, I don't remember there being any account of, of the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. Really. I wonder if you've ever paid attention to two of the four Gospels when it declares the darkness fell over the land. Luke chapter 23 Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Mark chapter 15, verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What is that darkness? Did you ever think about that? Let's point out a few things to really drive this home. Because this is what you have to understand. God is just and the justifier of those who are in Christ. And it all is summed up at the cross. That's what the propitiation means. Right? So let's look at this. This darkness, right? How does this point to God? Is this God's wrath? Well, let's look back at a few things in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Psalm 18, and let me point out something. Um, because we know God is light, yes. But this is uh, verse 7 and following. Then the earth... Oh, sorry, let me back up just so you know who we're talking about here. Verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. 
he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken, because he was angry. This is speaking about protection from enemies, right? So, what does God do? Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Verse 9. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. So, what's the point? Darkness, he traveled in darkness. Why darkness? What is he about to do? He's pouring out his wrath upon his enemies. He's starting to get the picture. Now let's look at another point. Exodus chapter 14. Turn with there. Turn with me there real quick. So in Exodus 14, you have this moment where Israel has just been released from Egypt. If you remember, they literally had the Passover and now they are fleeing, right? But then Pharaoh turns, he gathers his army. He regrets letting them go. And it says as they, the people essentially came up to the water, right? And they noticed that the Egyptians were following them. So look at verse 13 real quick and following. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them to separate them too, right? And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness. Yet it gave light at night. Speaking of the cloud. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So there's that darkness again. God literally is going to protect Israel, right? This darkness comes between them. And what is this next sign? It's his judgment on the Egyptian army. And you know the story. They follow in after them once the darkness is removed and the waters come down. So this darkness, right? God comes down in darkness in wrath. And one more point, and this is something that I know a lot of people were confused on in the past. Look at Genesis 15. Can I show you this picture here? So in Genesis 15, remember Abraham is receiving a promise. 
Uh, verse 5, he says, And he took him outside. This is God taking Abraham outside. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's that righteousness by faith. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, there's death, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. So you know they're dead. These are dead animals, right? It's basically like a path now with death on each side. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. What's about to happen? God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now pay attention here, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Cabanite continues on, basically all those. Um, but my point is, this light now, this flaming torch and lamp, right? Walking through death in the darkness in this form of judgment. It's a picture of the light of the world. Jesus, the one who would pass through death, through the punishment to uphold the covenant of God. That is how God is righteous and also just. And that is why in Romans three twenty six it says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you get it yet? This is what the ransom truly means. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are saved as we have faith and trust in him in what his accomplished work has done because God's wrath has been fulfilled, propitiated on our behalf if you are in Christ. Do you have peace with God? Remember, I asked that at the beginning. Consider these things, for this is the power of the gospel.